Welcome to The Sharp End. I'm Craig Brown, Senior Multi-Asset Investment Specialist for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. I'm joined as usual by David Coombs and Will McIntosh-White, the Fund Managers for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. Morning, chaps. Morning. Morning. On this month's episode, David, Will and I are going to be talking about the chemicals sector and how some recent comments from CEOs in that space are maybe starting to wave a few red flags. We're then going to turn to medtech and discuss whether we're finally seeing the long-awaited return of elective surgeries, which investors have kind of been waiting an awfully long time for, it feels like. And then finally, we're going to discuss German industrial powerhouse Siemens and our views on the company we've owned for just over a couple of years. Before we get on with the show, though, here are the usual do's and don'ts to keep us on the straight and narrow. This podcast is intended for professional investors and must not be shared with a non-professional audience. Any views and opinions are those of the investment manager and coverage of any assets must be taken into context of the constitution of the fund and in no way reflect investment recommendations. Past performance should not be seen as an indication of future performance. Right then, gents, the chemical sector is one which perhaps is seldom discussed, and let's face it, isn't quite as sexy a topic as AI and cloud computing, but it is a pretty vital cog in so many end markets. And given that chemicals companies are all the way upstream in a whole swathe of industries, they're often a pretty decent leading indicator of economic activity and what really lies ahead. Um, So with their role as the proverbial canary in this economic coal mine, perhaps we should start to listen when a spate of profit warnings and weaker numbers are coming out of those companies. So I guess my question is, should we be seeing this as a bright red flag and something perhaps afoot which makes us feel a bit uncomfortable? Or are there some mitigating factors here that make us feel a little less worried than maybe the red flags uh, showing that we should be? It's an area that you're right, it's not the most sexy and actually we don't have much exposure to, which is probably why we don't talk about it very often. Uh, and certainly the leading chemical companies, let's give it some context, BASF, uh, DuPont, Demers, uh, Dow Chemicals, these are the kind of companies we're talking about, none of which we own. And the reason we own them, is, of course, is because they're highly cyclical. But as you say, they are very useful in terms of looking at real world data rather than some of the stuff that's made up by central banks and uh, trying to understand. Because, of course, what we've talked about in all these podcasts is, you know, when are we going to start to see this lag in take effect, right? We've talked about this for months and months and months, and we haven't really seen the impact of higher rates, probably because of that speed we've talked about before of the, that, that rising. This for me is, 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 is a big moment actually in the sense that so many of those chemical companies, and admittedly it wasn't in, in maybe in industrial gases, but it's certainly in, in many other areas and across many sectors of this space, um, are now saying they're seeing a big fall in demand and destocking and inventories have built up. And that usually does kind of uh, intimate a big fall off in manufactured demand, which ultimately means you're getting a fall in demand from, from the front end, the retail, the uh, customer, et cetera. So I think we have to take this seriously. And of course, the market is taking it as, as badly as, as one might expect. And, and we're going to talk about Siemens later and Siemens share prices being a bit weaker as dark of the weeks on the, on the back of this. Again, all quite logical. I think it's actually a positive, right? And I think the reason I say it's a positive, it's not if you hold shares in BASF, by the way, or Dow Chemical, probably, but I think it is a positive because I think it, it does give us some finally some a real look through into the sense that interest rate rises are having an effect. Now, of course, you want to hope that Mr. Powell and Mr. Bailey are listening and looking at these numbers rather than some of the stuff coming through their departments. 
and start to think, okay, maybe we're, we're, we're near peak rates. Although weirdly, yesterday everyone was talking about how hawkish the Fed minutes were, and 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 setting us up for a rate rise this month, isn't it? Yeah. So I think it's healthy warning that the lag is starting to play through, and that um, we're going to see a fall off in activity. I think that's a fair point. I think one of the difficulties, as ever, in the environment that we're in at the moment is how much COVID has thrown so many things out of whack and this is yet another one of them Um, and it comes back to that point you mentioned about destocking and that's this phrase that we hear quite regularly from these chemicals companies that's the impact that they are seeing and essentially I I was trying to work out whether I was going to come up use this example uh, but one of our analysts uh, described destocking as using a bath as an analogy and essentially saying if you're a manufacturer you'd like to keep the bath, which is your sort of stock of raw materials, about half full. And so the tap coming in is you ordering more of these chemicals that you might need to produce. And the plug or the drain, as it were, unplugged drain, uh, that is your sort of sales going out the door. And normally, one in, one out, you know, the amount of coming in is matches what's going out and the bath stays about half full. And the problem with COVID is the tap started to get turned off because you had supply chain issues. And so your bar started to drain down and you couldn't meet that end demand. And so in response to that, people turned on the taps. They ordered more from these chemicals companies to sort of refill the bath and actually fill the bath even higher than they would normally um, because they were so worried about not being able to meet end demand. And of course, over time, this has said, actually, it's quite expensive keeping that bath full. Um, maybe we should just run that down back to normal levels. Um, And that is what's happening at the moment. But the thing is, is the question is actually, well, is it just that? Are you just getting back to normality? Or is it actually that they're looking at what's going out the drain and saying things are starting to look a little bit more difficult? Yeah, so are we getting back to like a stable equilibrium or are we? is this where we go into recession? And, you know... I'm not. I'm not going to change my view yet. I. I still think it's post-COVID equilibrium, and I hope I'm right. But I do think that, as you know, that the U.S. recession, if it comes, I think there's a risk that it's very shallow or doesn't actually come. Um, and I think what what these chemicals profits warnings have done is is actually reinforce the consensus view that the U.S. is about to have a deep recession. And, and Europe, et cetera. And that's why you're seeing that sell-off, particularly in cyclicals. I mean, I see the FTSE 100 is back at 7.3 again whilst I was on a holiday last week, you know. And this is the problem. Is it a false reading? Is it just getting back to normal? Or is this the signs that we're about to enter into a really nasty period? So on that false warning, I think there are a couple of other things that were pointed out in a recent article, other sectors that are normally reasonable leading indicators, reasonable bellwethers of economic activity in logistics and things like packaging. And like, you know, it sounds silly, but cardboard box shipments have not fallen this much since 08. And you don't want to sort of panic everyone with 08 comparisons. But ultimately, you know, that's something that probably can't be ignored. But again, how much of that is people overall 
wandering and then you get this kind of lapping effect and things like that. And then you also have the logistics side. Well, we all know what happened in logistics. So the problem is at the moment is it feels like there's so much noise in all this data. And are you looking at month on month, year on year? Are you looking at like an index? To, you know, it, and the, depending on the way you look at a lot of this data, you can get very different readings. And some of these readings are going to be false. And it's really important, I think, for us to not read too much into some of this stuff because you do risk take, making false readings off of it. One of those uh, chemicals companies, of course, called this Layman 2, didn't they? Um, yeah. And uh, But actually, if you unpick what they're actually saying, it's not that they thought we were going into an economic <laughs> crisis that's the same as when Lehman went under, but just making the point that the volume decline that they were seeing, they hadn't seen since the volume decline they saw post Lehman. But the interesting bit, you mentioned shipping there, and I came across a stat the other day, which, again, one of those stats where you just almost couldn't believe that apparently shipping as a sector made more money in the three years over the pandemic than they had done in the past six decades. Wow. And the reason I like that stat, because I think, as you say, you should have mentioned, we all know what happened during that period. And I think it's just a reminder when you see a stat that about how complicated things became, how out of whack things became. And as I say, I think a lot of this is just a rebalancing element. But I think I saw an analyst saying, well, destocking normally lasts six to nine months. And now it's for some for some companies, it's lasted sort of a year and a half. So it is starting to get to that level of, well, is it just a normal destocking or are we running into something more tricky here? Well, I mean, this is the problem with all the economists that we see, which they're really struggling. It, 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 in a way, I want to draw a, parallel, a little bit of a parallel to, to the Brexit thing, right? The, the, you've got the ardent Remainers and ardent Brexiteers arguing in the press every single day that Brexit's the cause of this and cause, or having a um, recession because of, you know, just a fall off in demand. There's so many false factors because of COVID. It's just destroyed all the data. It's destroyed all the models. Mm. And this is the problem is that everyone is really struggling with and is that everyone's trying to read into everything mm. and try and draw these, we talked about before, these historical comparisons. There are no historical comparisons that are worth looking at. And you can talk about Spanish flu in the 1920s, whatever it was, 1960s. Such a completely different world, wasn't it? (laughs) Google didn't exist, right? I mean, it's nuts. So I do think you've got to be really mind your eye with some of this stuff right now. There was no model that effectively said, well, what happens if you just press pause on the entire global economy for, you know, perhaps 18 months or whatever it ended up being? And... uh, because no one would have thought that that was, you know, was worth modelling, right? Because you'd say, well, what, what could possibly happen? And, you know, and that's why I think, again, as, as you rightly say, there is no historical comparison. And we don't really know how this noise is going to play out because there's no playbook for this. And we, we had no interna- we had no interdependent international supply chains 50 years, 100 yeah. years ago, right? So there is the, the, the situation today is so different to any other on every single level you look at. These people looking at models are tilting at windmills. I guess the other point to note is, of course, a lot of what we're talking about here is the impact on goods. And that is because goods was where you had that big disruption to both supply chains and demand. And and that is writing itself. And a lot of people have shifted that spend across from goods to services, which still seem to be holding up, even though goods are, are declining a little bit. So um, there is a little bit of shift in the economy in, in terms of where that spend's going. Yeah. I mean, in terms of how we're positioned in the portfolios to reflect all this stuff and this uncertainty, you know, we continue to build duration 
as yields rise, and there's a bit of volatility in the gill market today as we're recording this, you know, you know, we will continue to build that duration, that recession hedging. We've added to the put options, S&P put options, the last couple of weeks. You know, the, the, ironically, equity vol has been very low. The VIX has been very low. So we've been taking advantage of that higher yields, low volatility in equities to build up protection in case I'm on or I we are wrong and that the recession is going to be deeper than than we think so you know whilst we are hopeful we're kind of not betting the house on it absolutely I think the other thing I think lastly is just we haven't been shy in in sort of holding cash for periods of time as well and I think that you know with, with cash rates where they are at the moment with the way the yield curve looks actually there is some merit still in holding a bit of cash, you know, and, and allocating where you see opportunity. And we, we, we shouldn't be sort of afraid of, of doing that and, and haven't been at all. Well, the two-year guilt's 5.5% today. Well, it, there you go. There you go. On that note, we'll perhaps uh, turn our eyes to, uh, to to medtech. So, you know, moving on actually from a lot of the chat about COVID there, but during the COVID lockdowns, obviously, there was a lot of burden on the healthcare services we know, and a lot of elective surgeries ended up being shelved for really an unknown period of time uh, during that sort of COVID lockdown window. This meant that a lot of med tech companies whose services, uh, you know, that kind of elective, but perhaps not urgent surgery sector took a bit of a hit. Um, but given those surgeries are largely been postponed and not abandoned, one hopes, you know, ultimately, if you need a new hip, you need a new hip at some point, right? You know, there's been that expectation that surgeries are going to resume and you'd get a boost back to a lot of those med tech companies. That boost, as if we've seen, taken far longer than anticipated, you know, so we're still here in 2023 talking about when is this going to come back. But, you know, some recent comments from United Health, who are, you know, for those who don't know them, they're sort of a behemoth US healthcare insurance company. You know, they've been talking in their recent earnings release about claims being slightly higher because you're having a lot of Medicare patients that are now coming back and taking up those hip and knee replacements in particular in the US. So, you know, are we kind of finally feeling this is that tipping point where that all comes back? Or again, are there other things to consider here that we perhaps shouldn't be too ready to celebrate just yet? No, I think it definitely is, is this coming back? And I think this is something we flagged. I'd argue that perhaps it got delayed because you've seen staffing shortages, uh, which has been the other pressure in this space. As you say, people didn't want to go in for an elective surgery. Well, if you think most surgery stopped, at all, even even some of the ones where, or at least slow down, some of the ones that are le- less elective. Um, yeah. Our view is always those were going to be the first ones to come back, you know, like Edwards, which do heart valves, for example. You, you need to get those in pretty quick if you need a new one. And it was the more elective ones that, that we felt would come back over time. And of course, there's an ability and willingness to get this done. One is the willingness to actually go back into hospital and risk COVID because, you know, I knew people at the time who went in for a hip and came up months later because they got COVID in there. And then the actual ability to be able to go in there, get it all scheduled in, the hospitals have the capacity to do these. And of course, you had this ever-increasing backlog with hospitals in the US or the NHS over here struggling to get that done. As we know, we all hear all sorts of stories in the UK at the moment with the NHS and its backlogs and people struggling to actually be able to go in and get the surgeries they need. You know, you see a big tick up in people doing it privately, actually, in the UK. But in terms of that throughput, you know, as a figure came out the other day saying US hospitals have increased their operating minutes per day by 5%. Now, I don't know how they've managed to do that. You know, maybe they're working longer hours, but maybe they're just actually able to get the staff because that was it. It was literally, you know, you need not just a surgeon, but various mm. nurses around that to support a surgery. 
Um, and if you are struggling to find the staff, then you're not going to be able to perform that operation. And I think you've had those non-elective surgeries come back pretty well. And I think there's a long runway for businesses like Edwards, where high levels of innovation are seeing people take up their products more and more. So you've got that sort of dual element of a nice long backlog and then innovation driving you know, double-digit growth. And the electives are starting to come back now. Yeah, I mean, I think medtech to me is always is, is not a cyclical story, but it's become a cyclical story because of COVID, ironically. I mean, medtech actually, our, our thesis around the whole medtech space and our preference for this over pharma is because medtech should eventually reduce costs to governments and healthcare agencies, improve efficiency. If, 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 and I, I know we're not really allowed to talk about healthcare as a business, but just bear with me one second. You know, if you're the NHS and your patients are customers, you want to see as many customers as you can during the day, right? And get as many through the theater as possible because that's more efficient. Now, it's med technology development and innovation that's going to drive that. You know, we're never going to get rid of these backlogs by just pumping more money into the NHS or its equivalents across the world, however it's funded, right? Ultimately, aging populations, less healthy populations through the rise of obesity and diabetes, etc., we have got to either prevent people getting ill, i.e. diagnose it more quickly, earlier, or when we are having to treat provide treatment it's got to be cheaper more efficient less invasive less man hours to get those procedures done and get them out of the hospital again right and 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 similarly we've been keeping people who are older out of hospitals as well and treating them using technology in their own homes Mm -hmm. and using virtual treatments rather than necessarily you know stuck in a big building in the middle of town so i think the long-term trajectory for this for this this sector is incredibly exciting and it's good for society because not only do the companies involved are going to make good profits from this innovation actually we're going to drive hopefully healthier mm. outcomes so you win-win you've got a, you've got your customers who are gaining got business gaining and you've got governments are gaining because they're saving costs i always like to invest in businesses that are ultimately going to reduce costs if you think about pharmaceuticals and we do have some pharmaceutical companies but you're trying to maximize the price for the good that you're selling into that that healthcare, right? So you want to get the maximum for your drugs because of all the R&D costs of, you know, many years, of course, of, of, of developing those drugs. In this space, hopefully you're creating efficiencies. You think about Dexcom that we own and Abbott Labs in terms of treatment of diabetes and preventing people becoming ill and having to the hospital. In, in the laboratory space like Thermo Fisher that we own in Eurofins, but again, on that prevention side, and we've just added Boston Scientific to the portfolios as well. So we've got a very diversified portfolio of med tech, which I see as a very long-term investment theme. But to your point, Will, it's become cyclical, of course, because of COVID, because a lot of these companies suddenly saw revenues kind of cliff edge, didn't they? Other than, of course, the laboratory testing companies that were nimble enough to switch to mm. COVID testing. Yeah. And actually, do you remember the share prices fell because of COVID and those lab companies? Because, oh, they're not going to be doing the cancer tests and all this other. And now they thought the share prices have fallen because COVID testing is the irony of it. It's because there's so much noise in those numbers because yeah. you're trying to unpick, well, what's COVID testing? You know, yeah. that, as that goes away, what comes back? And it goes back again, doesn't it? It's this whole COVID noise, whether it is yes. chemicals or whether it's in these in- industries. Again, it just creates so much data noise, so much qualitative noise when you're talking to management as well to try and unpick all of this. I think it takes a slight change in viewpoint as well, either from the NHS or from the insurers probably in the US to start to say, well, actually, 
the overround cost of this is cheaper. And I think that's perhaps certainly probably in the NHS, perhaps more of an more of an issue than maybe US hospitals, which I suspect take a slightly better viewpoint of this. As you say, when you talk about the Edwards heart valve and the way that goes into the body, it doesn't have to open up the chest, it goes in through the thigh and so better, quicker recovery times, less usage of bears, less usage of nurse time. So as a hospital, you're probably willing to pay reachable amount more for that heart valve because of all the overall cost savings that you make elsewhere. And that feels like a no-brainer. It's that net versus gross thing. And I remember, again, there's a real tangential story here, but you know, we spoke a long time ago to Ecolabs and I remember they said at the time they didn't used to win a lot of government contracts because a lot of government contracts were based off of effectively gross cost, not net cost. And their whole MO effectively was, look, their, their chemicals and their equipment is more expensive, but it's more efficient. So you can use less of it. It lasts. For, so effectively you're spending more in the long, spending less in the long run, sorry, and again, you're going to need that mindset shift, as you say, Will, uh, to go on a, on a kind of net cost basis when you look at whether it be bringing Dexcom into the NHS's treatment of diabetes or, as you mentioned there, Edwards into you know heart valve replacements. Um, and that's where you get that big up. Yeah, the problem is, you know, if you look at the UK, and, and you know most of the companies we just talked about are definitely not UK-facing necessarily. But if you're a politician and you say, we're going to 20,000 more nurses, you get airtime. If you say, we're going to buy a lot more of Edwards valves, you don't get on the BBC. Yeah, and this is this is the mindset you're talking about, right? And if you think about any other industry, you don't just throw more people at it. Mm. You know, increasingly you you bring technology, and there seems this fear, and that's where these companies got to be better. It's got to be good at lobbying into those, and not just lobbying to the people running the hospitals, but they should be. I'm sure they are. It's lobbying with the politicians and getting this message across. Because until we do that, waiting list, the NHS is just going to get longer and longer and longer. Sadly. I would say the side issue of this, of course, I think is is the labour market. Mm. And the fact is, is the longer that waiting list gets in the UK, the longer those yeah. people, no, many point. of them are not able to get back to work. And so either stay out of the workforce or a long-term sick leave and continue the tight labour market that we've seen. And so it's encouraging to hear this normalisation process that is going on, maybe not so much here, but but more globally, certainly in the US and Europe in terms of getting people better, getting their surgeries done, and hopefully they will recover, get back into the workforce and take some of the tightness out of the labour force that we've been seeing the last couple of years. Excellent. Well, that rounds us off nicely on the MedTech um, discussion, but we'll turn our attention now, as I mentioned earlier, to Siemens. So it's a company that, frankly, isn't one that you might think we'd have in our equity shopping basket, but the company's gone through quite a period of change over the last decade or so. Um, you know, it's really changed the profile of how this company looks, and it made us sit up and take notice a couple of years ago when we first added the name to the portfolios. Is this one where really, David, we think the market still misunderstands them and perhaps unfairly typecasts them as a train and heavy machinery manufacturer and actually there's more to Siemens these days it's interesting isn't it because I mean Siemens is a stock I, I, I would never have thought we'd be owning to be honest um and I, I, you talk about bias you know you just have this old you know sort of smoky horrible mm. kind of heavy industrial kind of business that you just don't, don't, don't want to own and you would miss something and in fact you know Siemens is, is on a relatively low valuation and yet you know I think like 25 30 percent of its revenues is medtech Actually, so um, it's actually, in fact, something like eighty percent plus of Siemens revenues are, drawn, are driven through technologies. Mm. There is still the railway uh, part of the business, because it's quite small. 
What they've done is sell off a lot of non-core businesses the last 15 years. They have become much more financial disciplined. And, and actually, to be fair, it was an analyst that we use in one of our, our, the brokers that we, we talked to who had followed Siemens for, I think it was like 20, 25 years. I mean, he probably would get a seat on the board. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said to us, you know, this is a stock I've never had a buy recommendation on. He said, I'm changing it to a buy for the first time in like a decade or so. I was like, Frankie, okay, why is that? He said, well, they've sold off the energy business, which includes the renewables. Do you think, well, that's a bit interesting, but that's the, the wind turbines, which actually is not very profitable. That's the Siemens Gamesa business. Yeah. Well, they just they, had a terrible time. They just with had their a terrible, they have actually. indeed. And so that looks like a good, a good decision. So what Siemens has been doing over the last sort of five, 10 years is, it, it, or particularly in the last five years, is really becoming more disciplined around capital allocation, return on equity. And, you know, it's in robotics, med tech, some really exciting long-term growth areas that the market is just not recognizing in terms of valuation. Probably the same reasons that we thought we're never going to own Siemens, but actually it's really exciting in, in, and the returns they're generating are a step change to, to history. And so it just goes to show you've got to be open-minded. I mean, we just bought Sony for the first time. It's like slight, slight sort of a tangent, but again, Sony, who I met in Tokyo, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. I mean, I, there's no way I'd ever thought I'd be buying Sony, but again, Companies can reinvent, it just goes to show, companies can reinvent themselves and new management teams if they're willing to be disciplined, sell off non-core or sell off assets that could be better owned by other companies mm. uh, rather than this ego kind of, and you, you saw a lot of this in Europe and Japan, particularly during the 80s and 90s, where just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, these huge conglomerates, you know, just, uh, it's almost like an ego thing, right? We're going to run, you know, yeah. the market cap is bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, what you're starting to see is the reversal of that trend with some of these companies. It's getting a bit leaner and meaner, to use a kind of well-overused phrase. And I think Siemens is one of those. I think Siemens, say that conglomerate word, is absolutely key in terms of how it's maybe still viewed to a certain extent, but certainly yeah. how it was. And it reminded me of GE to yeah. a certain extent, yeah. where you went into this business and you'd be like, oh, they've got aviation, they've got healthcare, they've got oil and gas, they've got telecoms, they've got insurance, like financial construction, <laughs> venture capital. You're just like, well, what is this business? You know, it's really difficult to get a grip on it. And as you say, thankfully, well, it was highlighted to us that they're genuinely going through a streaming process, you know, moved out that energy piece, which they still own a bit of, but that is going down to zero. They've spun out the health and ears business, which now is a standalone business, albeit they still own 75% of that business. And I suspect that is probably here to stay, but you've got mm. what is now at least a core of sort of four areas. But even that is still... You know, you feel like you end up owning, okay, you've got the sort of automation piece. You've almost got a Rockwell automation business there and smart infrastructures, which looks like Snyder Electric or, you know, the HVAC business, which looks like Johnson Controls, as you, you know, the mobility business and then the healthcare side. And so it is still a bit of a conglomerate. And I guess to a certain extent over time, you'd like to see maybe a little bit more of this restructuring, but we're at least down to four core businesses with really solid tailwinds behind them. You know, it's that secular growth tailwinds that we always look for. And, and you've now got them in spades. And those businesses, as you say, you've seen that step change in margin from low margin business to, you know, getting to a level that we want to see. But even in mobility and on the rail, it, a lot of that is about electrification. It's a lot about the technology, the sense technology to make the track safer. I mean, you still, unfortunately and sadly, you're still seeing train disasters around the world. Yeah, this technology is, one, it makes 
the, the railway is more efficient and secondly, um, safer. And many railway companies, including the one we own, Canadian Pacific, spend a lot of money in this space with companies like Siemens. It's a, it actually, it's a very strong ESG story as we try and get more freight and people onto rails away from roads. And what I think is quite ironic, though, is probably two or three years ago, Siemens would, would have been rated because of the renewable energy business but it's now being re-rated because it's got rid of the renewable energy business. It just goes to show how you can be so careful around the hype around some of these themes. What I like about Siemens, I think you're right, it could still do a little bit of streamlining, but at least there's a roadmap there and you can see that it's part of their ongoing strategy from the management. And they've done it and they're evidencing that strategy. And that's what's most important. Lots of CEOs talk to us with these grand ideas and visions of how they're going. You want to see them do it. And I think that's it with Sony and Siemens. Mm. They're doing it, and the market is still not there yet. I think that's right. And as you say, you mentioned evaluation. I think whilst they remain a bit of a conglomerate, you're always going to see a bit of a discount. But some of those peers that I mentioned, you know, the valuations they're trading on are sort of high teens, low 20s versus Siemens at around 15. And actually, Siemens is pushing that margin. I think if it manages to get margins closer to peers, you know, suddenly you're looking at, a revaluation and on higher earnings. And so these, are, I think, with a decent amount of room to go. Excellent. So that leads us on to the last part of the show. Uh, any other business where we all get to have our usual monthly grumble about something that has bugged us uh, for this month? Uh, Will, I'll let you kick us off this time. So why don't you get it going with Ju- your June grumble? My June grumble is going to be standing ovations at theatres. Um, okay. so I rarely go to the theatre, um, but I do on occasion. I normally go to see something that's quite good. Let's get to the end of the show. Everyone starts clapping and then it's been good, right? But, you know, unless it's been fantastic, I'm not giving a standing ovation. Maybe I'm just a miserable so-and-so. Um, <laughs> but a few people start stand up and give that standing ovation. And then it just slowly you feel the sort of awkwardness in everybody else. And so they all start standing and then more and more. And then I can't see. And so if either I can't see to applaud so I'm just sort of left as a sort of miserable few who have said, well, we didn't start a standing ovation, so we're not going to join in. Um, so yeah, that's where I stand. So no you are a tough ovations, critic then, Will. It's very good. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's that kind of, uh, you know, that the five-star culture where everyone just gives every Uber driver five stars, right? You know, Quite right. Um, that's Quite the right. uh, the kind of the mobility equivalent, I guess. But, I just um, think he's miserable. I mean, there is partly that as well, to be fair. Um, David? So um, I was in Italy last week, so I got th- I'm got. i afraid I got three points. Uh, oh, how long we got? Yeah, yeah, so I, they, they're going to be sharp, but all right. Um, one's positive and, and two not so positive. And so Elisa, who's uh, Italian in our fixed income team, um, just to warn her now and trigger her. Um, so first of all, the good news, I got a train from Venice to Florence. Um, it was very clean. It was 50 quid, first class, left early, went 160 miles an hour, arrived early. And then came back this week on Great Western, and this week it was very different. <laughs> but less positively, it's it's zebra crossings in Italy. It seems to me that there must be a sign in front that says accelerate, because there is nothing more lethal than saying, let's find this crossing and get across the other side of the road. Because <laughs> I have damn amazed I even made it back, to be honest with you. It's almost like you're a target the minute you step on to a level crossing in an Italian city. And finally, as you know, I do like a sculpture. You do? you do? I do like a sculpture. And so uh, I went to see David. Okay. Did you know there are more statues called David in Italy than statues of women? But also Michelangelo, right? If you want someone to paint a ceiling, he's your man. I mean, <laughs> he's very good at ceilings. On statues, I'm not so sure. 
I mean, David's feet and hands totally out of proportion. Such See, a disappointment. Tough critic. Sorry. Again, another tough critic. I can imagine David standing there just shaking his head going, no, not doing it for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> Nobody has hands that big. <laughs> I, I would, I would just say I'd be a bit disappointed if I turned up on time for a train and it had left early. But anyway. What's yeah, worse? But I, was, I was on it. So it was exactly. Right. What's worse, a late train or an early train? <laughs> I think probably an early train. Um, right. So um, I had a couple of options. I was going to have a big old whinge about Johnny Bairstow's run out, but I thought that's probably been done to death now, to be fair. So apologies to any Australian listeners, but that's an absolute travesty. But anyway, so my grumble, I don't really know who to aim my grumble at, right? But it's it's kind of like fixing problems that I'm not quite sure exist. So think about the new like bottles of Coke and Sprite you get, right? And you open them yeah. and those lids they don't come off anymore they're connected now I thought at first I had a faulty lid and then I read the bottle and it said oh no the lid doesn't come off now so it can be recycled together now look maybe I'm wrong but I didn't think that was a massive problem that needed fixing or maybe I'm just the weird one who doesn't decide to dispose of the lid just Sorry. anywhere they want to discard it do you and not care the about the planet well I do, do you not care but about, the I, point yeah. is I cared about the planet enough before they started connecting them that normally when I finished a bottle I probably had the lid I'd just screw the lid back on the top and pop it in the recycling. I didn't make a concerted effort to dispose of the lid inside a bush, and then I'd go and put the bottle in a in a recycling thing. So either my I'm imploring bottling companies to stop fixing a problem that doesn't exist. I really don't want a bottle lid shoved up my nostril when I'm trying to drink my bottle of Sprite. Or alternatively, if people are disposing of them separately, just be better. Just use your common sense, screw the lid back on the top, and put it all in the bin together. So basically, you two, you're whinging about a bottle top and a standing ovation. I'm talking about people dying on zebra crossing. <laughs> Get a well, life. The, you know, well, you know, I thought I'd bring us down to something a slightly more trivial, you know. I don't know. I, re I really don't enjoy fin drinking those Finish the show. <laughs> <laughs> what, before you have another AOB you think of? Right, okay. So thank you for listening to us. Um, I hope you'll join us again uh, next month for the next monthly installment at the Sharp End. If you didn't listen at the time, please feel free to go back and listen again to those earlier episodes. Last month, Will, David and I discussed commodities, which had been a hot topic of conversation in 2022, but less so this year. Uh, we then covered the world of AI and discussed the opportunities and pitfalls presented by that potentially revolutionary piece of technology. And then we finished on Adobe, who we see as a beneficiary of the developments in AI to further solidify their place in the digital marketing world. You can subscribe to the podcast on all the podcasting platforms. And please don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button. Uh, also, feel free to rate and review us if you've got some time as well. And if you'd like to hear more about the Rathbone multi-asset funds, please speak to your usual Rathbone sales contact or visit us at www.rathbonefunds.com. Thanks again. Thanks again.